0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia freebie and this week, we're in Georgia.
1: From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist
0: state, and when you hear the call, you know so well, sisters began. Hi, everyone. Amelia here. Welcome back to 50 Feminist States Season 3. Today, we have our second episode from Georgia. I spoke to doc- Dr. Alex Olson, who was a spoken word touring poet for a very long time and is now a professor at Emory University, Oxford College. We weren't able to connect while I was in Georgia over the summer, but we did have a really wonderful conversation over the phone later in the fall, and I am very excited to share it with you today. You will notice the quality is a little bit different from some of my in-person interviews, but she just shares so much knowledge about spoken word poetry, um, really profound reflections on the ways that the work that spoken word poetry does has changed as technology has changed, but how it still functions as a tool for social justice in our contemporary world like it did in the 90s when she was touring and performing queer and feminist poetry across the country. We also talk about her journey from being an artist activist to being an academic, getting her PhD and now teaching at a university. And then I out a little bit and ask a bunch of questions about her research on resilience and some of her feminist icons and inspirations. So all of that is yet to come in today's episode. Before we get there, just one more reminder that if you rate and review the podcast on iTunes before season three ends, which is a week from today, you will automatically be entered to win our giveaway for a 50 Feminist States prize pack. So you can even do that while you're listening today just go ahead and rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. You will automatically be entered. For now, without further ado, here is Dr. Alex Olson.
2: So my name is Alex Olson and um, I am an artist activist uh, who created um, spoken word performances for a really long time. That was sort of at the core of my identity for a long time. Um, And I now am A professor, an assistant professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Emory University at the Oxford campus.
1: So, I would love to just kind of hear if you can share the story of how you started performing spoken word.
2: So, when I was in
1: college,
2: I I was taking a lot of poetry classes, and I was really fortunate to have a class with the poet Kate Rushen, um, who wrote the bridge poem in this bridge called My ba- Back. Um, sort a renowned feminist, black feminist anthology. And she looked at my poetry one day and just said, you're writing spoken word. And I had never really heard of spoken word. I certainly had never heard of slam poetry as a phenomenon. This was, I guess, in 1995. And it was kind of just getting off the ground, uh, slam poetry. And so, she said, I think you'd really be like, I think you'd be interested in this world. And so when I graduated from college, I moved to New York City to, I had no plan at all. I was one of the only people I knew who did not have a plan. I knew, I sort of had this like vague idea about changing the world, doing art. I had just spent four years, you know, getting really impassioned and angry about a lot of stuff. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do about that. I started working at a gay bookstore in New York and just because it seemed like an, a, an extension of uh, knowledge. Um, and then one night, I think early on in my time there, went to the New York and Poets Cafe. And that night just com- was a complete explosion, um, artistically, politically, creatively. I'd never experienced anything like what was happening in the cafe that night. It was hacked with people cheering each other on and, and and all because of poetry. And this is just not my understanding of poetry at all. But in that moment, I understood why um, Kate had told me to go. And I got up and I read my poem, had like folded in a little star shape in my pocket, and and sort of entered this community. And really early on, I, I made it onto the Eurekan Slam Poetry team. And there were four of us on the team. We traveled to the national competition in Austin, Texas. That year, we won the national competition, and then we started touring as a team. And it was just this really special, indescribably unique time in my life where we just bopped around the country um, as a little core spouting poetry at whoever would, would have us. And then ultimately I began doing it on my own, primarily because feminist groups on college campuses and lesbian groups on campuses would ask me to come. So I created my own little kind of touring life out of that. Eventually I had a band that I traveled with and a tour manager and um, did a lot of festivals and marches and clubs and I mean, I, we traveled all over the world doing it, and, um, and I got to, I don't know, be a part of so many feminist communities. So when you talk about this sort of 50 feminist states, I mean, I feel like that in part was um, my project also um, was just driven by my curiosity about what was happening, and, and poetry was my vehicle to get, selfishly, to get to do that, to get
1: to inquire, because I really ended up asking a lot of questions um, when I was touring. That's so interesting. I as I'm doing this podcast, I love projects that really do kind of seek out feminist community across the the nation or the world at large. I like how you describe it. I mean, it sounds like a invaluable, um, hard to, you know, articulate in a single story or instance experience. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could share one or two stories of like a place you were or a poem you read during that touring time, like something that stands out or moment you've thought of recently, maybe for a reason you don't even, but just like came to mind or something like that.
2: Hmm. You know, I was thinking recently uh, about the first women's March, which, you know, was in the early 2000s. And I remember performing a poem I had called Cunt Country and Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, standing on stage. It was the largest March in U.S. history. I think there were like a million people there. um, And it was profound that the that the largest march in U.S. history was a feminist march, you know, and I remember doing country in front of the White House and just feeling, I don't know, feeling like there's, like, this is it, like, this is the, this is the point of feminist activism, and then going back after um, Trump's election and it feeling like we're starting the whole thing over again, you know, yeah. it's like, um um, but also just the way that language changes, you know, as a, as a person who worked primarily within the field of language and, um, and now studies discourse, um, as, a, as a, you know, a, a scholar of Foucault and, and a queer theorist, thinking the, of the ways in which language changes as a tool of resistance is, has been really fascinating to track, you know, and I think that my understanding of that has changed over over time with my new understanding and um, new sort of insights um, as a, as a thinker. It seems like at the time, I remember feeling when I was touring, like, this language is so radical. You know, the language that we're using, that we're wielding, wielding words as weapons, I think was like my slogan. Um, it just felt so radical. And now it so much of it feels so dated and sort of, sort of acclimating to, to the ways in which change itself is, is something to embrace, right, rather than resist. And, and, and talking to students now, I talk to, to, to students who are queer identified who would laugh at the idea of screaming country you know and that was like the pinnacle of my career so um so there's also like a lot of humility I think in enrolling in with the ways that discourse shapeshifts
1: yeah I mean it's such a, a profound reflection and I'm sure like has to be such a personal moment of reck- reckoning and, and kind of feeling Like what you just said, like the pinnacle of your career is something that some of your students (laughs) Um, hard and definitely something I also feel with my students. Yeah.
2: Right. I I called myself a dyke recently, and I had one student say like, "You can't use that word. You can't you can't use the word dyke. Oh, wow. That's not like an okay word to use." <laughs> yeah. And I was yeah. thinking, oh my god, I spent like I globe trotted for a decade to reclaim this word. Don't tell me I can't use this word, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. It seems like like kind of watching videos of your tour and I watched at least the trailer of the documentary that was made about it. Uh Could you maybe speak to, it seems like really spoken word and performance was this sort of like social form of social justice work that you were doing. And I'm wondering, did you think of it that way? Um, Do you think spoken word was or still is a mode of social justice and how can that work? What does that look like?
2: Yeah. I mean, certainly, certainly it has um, the technologies that are available. I mean, both literally in the Foucaultian sense of technologies, right, the ways that um, that, that we transport these ideas to one another have, have changed. So at the time, there was a real material, it felt like a, like a real material grassroots network that we were engaged in building as spoken word artists. So that part of it was about the substance of what we were saying, but a lot of it was about the actual Um, work of doing it was about the traveling it was about the 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 literal infrastructure that it felt like we were building um, as as cultural workers Um, so that we would go from one town and be you know performing at um, either individually or collectively performing at a, a rally and then go to the next town and tell them about the rally where we had just been right and so we felt like grassroots media and I think we were in some ways Um, and so when people would say you're preaching to the converted you know that was like the main critique was like well but you're talking to people who already believe these ideas it was like yeah but we are that's my role I don't see my role as like converting people ideologically like I feel like part of my work is letting people know they're not alone Mm -hmm. and that impetus has changed I think that people don't experience that aloneness in that same way anymore just because of the material shift um, of the internet and social media. So what role do spoken word artists play that are actually traveling and touring now? I, I'm not sure. Certainly not that same specific um, sense of community building, although I will say that um, people coming out in their real bodies and their real material bodies to gather in a space and witness somebody on a bare stage just using their body and their voice to say something um, is increasingly, I think, a a unique moment. And so performers who can get people out of their homes and and out from their TVs and their computers, um, I think, are still performing that kind of work because people still need to gather, you know? Yeah. So did I see myself as doing social justice work? Yeah, I did. That was the main thing I thought I was doing.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And it was, it was not just like trying to get people to think what I thought. It was, I think, in many ways, trying to embody or perform irreverence and risk-taking um, at times, at, uh, during many times when I was afraid to do that. I remember after 9-11, this conversation that a lot of us had about what we should do. Like, should we, is it too dangerous to travel? Is it too dangerous to, to spout this kind of anti-nationalist? Um, anti-imperialist rhetoric at this moment,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and there was a there was a lot of conversation around like no, we have to do it anyway. That's the point. Like the point is to keep doing this work. And I remember traveling internationally um, after after that time, and people saying like it's really important for us to hear people from the United States saying these kinds of things about the United States in this moment.
1: Yeah. I I think it's just so fascinating to reflect on kind of that history and how things change, but also how we circle back to different but similar moments. When I was watching the trailer for the documentary, there was this moment of like, I had because there's a scene where I think you and someone you were traveling with are like in front of the White House kind of mocking it. And in my mind, I'm immediately like, oh, yes, of course, like, mocking trump's white house and i'm like wait no this is <laughs> <a cow. laughs> this list a- yeah that was bush yeah was bush. <laughs> <laughs> and so i think that i had to, like catch myself in the wording my tendency to think of the present as all of time or something yeah so as a reminder of like there are many moments where these technologies like crop up and the work they're doing is interesting and different and important Yeah, I don't know. I guess I was just thinking about that when I watched it and then hearing you kind of talk about the different role that that played then and may play now. And I think the internet has changed that, which is something I reflect on a lot in traveling, but also recognize that like, sometimes I'll go to two cities an hour away from each other and talk to two people doing work around the same things who have never heard of each other. Right. The internet does something strange to distance, I think, and to time that grassroots activists are still figuring out how to work with.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I feel like I'm thinking about, you know, Michelle Alexander um, in her book, The New Jim Crow, talks about preservation through transformation and the ways in which things, you know, she's talking about in the context of the carceral state and how, you know, Jim slavery became Jim Crow, becomes mass incarceration, and how just because things take a different form or look different doesn't mean that they're different. And I think that that's Really true in a lot of the things that I was critiquing, which, you know, unfortunately are still relevant. Um, so the language has changed. And so some of the, you know, my poems I think are really outdated in terms of like how they're saying things. But the problem is consistent and it's, um, it's incredibly disconcerting. So are spoken word artists still necessary for social justice work? Like, yeah, yeah, they are. And I love that a lot of my students write spoken word and they're doing that for their final project. And I'm very, I'm very happy about that. Yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah. I teach a class called the Arts of, um, the Arts of U.S. Activism. Mm -hmm. And it's a class that traces um, activist sites through creative and artistic interventions. And their final project is to create an artistic intervention. Um, And so they're like, they're doing these amazing projects where they're taking over the campus with paintings of, um, you know, Uh, non-binary gender portraits or they're um uh staging sort of me to like um protest marches in the quad and um yeah it's but it's but what's what's incredible it's like it's the same stuff I would have taken issue
1: with when I was 19 you know Mm -hmm. yeah it sounds like such an exciting class
2: yeah it is and it's it's also um What's really exciting about it is that I, is that because I am an artist and because that's my background, I have so many people that I can bring in to talk to these students. It's not just like, let's read about these people. Um, and in fact, there's one person who, um, she, she does, she studies graffiti culture. Um, cool. um, and her book is called Graffiti Girls. Her name is Jessica um, Pablo colomb and she wrote this book about performing feminism in the hip hop diaspora. And, um, and her work is all about um, hip hop as a site of feminist art activism. And I emailed her and I just said, hey, can you like come talk to my class? Um, and she said, like, absolutely. And then she said, oh, I'm familiar with your work from back in the day. Will you come talk to my class? So um, all of these like art activists from back in the day who are now in these positions of being professors are doing these exchanges, and that's, it's like a different, you know, it's just a different kind of work, but it feels like that those resources are not being lost, they're just being transformed.
1: That's fascinating, and could you talk a little bit about kind of your journey and how you ended up at Emory? Yeah, so I, the last project that I did
2: as a sort of active art artist, I decided to put together an anthology, it's called Word Warriors, Um, and it was an anthology of the women who were Boring, I think, a full-time spoken word artist-activist. And as I was finishing that anthology, I just, I don't know, something felt like it was coming to a close for me and for my own work. Um, and in part, it felt like I wanted to delve back into theory, um, and there just hadn't been time to do that when I was touring all the time. And, you know, a lot of the labor that's involved in being an artist-activist is dreary labor you know it's like there's a lot of at that time like in the very beginning was calling people on the phone and um, trying to find a place to stay and I just was kind of tired I was I was tired by my own my own work mm-hmm. um, and so I wanted to delve back into theory that was my love and it's where I had, what I had done when I was an undergraduate and I knew that that theory had changed and that the world was changing and I was sort of, as much as I was a part of it while I was on the road, I was also missing a lot of what was happening in in um, in scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to give myself time and space to do that. Um, and so I did that for, it took me eight years to do my PhD because I also had two kids in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I now have a six-year-old and a two-year-old and I will say that those two projects are pretty astounding as well Mm -hmm. um and complex and challenging feminist projects Mm -hmm. um and so and then uh right as i was finishing my phd i i got this job so it was not really not easy and a lot of things happened for me i think personally that that were challenging but this is i don't know it feels this feels like a great synthesis of the work that I was doing because this place where I am in particular, Oxford values teaching above all else, which was my love. I mean, I, I like writing. I love, I love reading, but, um, but the teaching aspect is what I really, why I wanted to do this work. And I love Atlanta. I love, I, th- I feel like it's a, it's a racially diverse, culturally diverse, artistically available place to be. So I feel really fortunate that I landed here.
1: That's wonderful. I would also love, to hear more I love the title of your um, I think dissertation and book you're working on Mm -hmm. um, the promises of resilience governance and resistance in complex times and I kind of just want to be a nerd and ask if you can just talk a little bit about your concept of resilience and, and what that means either from like a really academic perspective or maybe how you see it like in relation to like activist work today yeah so
2: um, I started thinking about resilience when I was in New Orleans um, and I saw a sign that said stop calling me resilient and I was kind of stumped and I loved that kind of being stumped um, and so I started just really grappling with this idea that resilience has been what seemed to be on the rise um, as something that was a positive thing and so I wanted to know what was going on um, and so um, my my book, well, hopefully my book, um, it, it starts with the individual subject and the ways in which I think as people, individual people, our subjectivities are being shaped through resilience discourses. Um, and I look at the self-help industry as the technology that's doing that work. And then I think about communities. And in that context, I look at New Orleans and um, the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Campaigns. And the ways in which cities are now being shaped as resilient cities and the kinds of banking programs and loan and funding programs that are, that are being used to make more resilient economies in these cities um, and more resilient architecture. And then I look at the U.S. military as a site of resilience building, and I argue there that um, the military is being shaped as a resilient force of what they actually call super soldiers it's the largest psychological experiment in U.S. history of mm-hmm. uh, being conducted on 1.1 million soldiers who are being subjected to resilience training. And I'm arguing that essentially in the context of austerity policies and the, the draining of funding for soldiers and for veteran programs, that what they're doing there is rather than, and this is what positive psychologists are actually doing in the program, is um, taking away this concept of PTSD and replacing it with, pre-resilience soldiering. So the idea is that soldiers will be capable of enduring longer and longer deployments um, and shouldn't suffer from trauma because if they do their training properly, they will be resilient enough to withstand endless war and suffering. And then I, um, I look at the, the World Bank And specifically, policies about building resilient refugees and immigrants, the ways in which empowerment policies are being replaced by resilience policies, because the idea is that pain and suffering is not going to end at any time soon. Um, And so it doesn't really help to be empowered anymore because there are no opportunities to claim. Rather, we need to be resilient in the context of all of the hardships that are bound to come our way. And then finally, I look at the building of a resilient human species and I look at the um, NASA's plans to go to Mars. And the discourse there is literally about making the human species more resilient by expanding us to become an interplanetary species because the United, I'm um, sorry, the world, <laughs> the last United States, um, is um, is being destroyed by capitalism. So I'm arguing there that taking capitalism to another planet is not really the solution. So it's, a, it's, it's ultimately a critique of the ways in which resilience is being used in the service of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not arguing that we need to get rid of the concept altogether, but rather we need to be more critical of the ways in which it's used and who's using it.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I want to read this book, so I hope it comes out in <laughs> the world sometime soon. <laughs> um, Thanks. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really complicated because
2: resilience is also something that Artists and activists, and I mean, Black Lives Matter uses it. It was used um, at the Standing Rock protest, so it's like it's it's definitely, I think, a site of contest and the tug of war um, over how it's being used.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I've heard so many appeals to resilience from so many places, but it does sound like all of the instances that you're describing and critiquing are ways in which systemic and structural issues are being passed off onto individuals or communities to to withstand. Yeah, yeah. What's not being changed? Yeah, yeah. Um, I always like to end interviews by asking about maybe other feminists or activists that you admire, past, present, or future?
2: Hmm.
1: I mean, certainly
2: from as an undergraduate at Wesleyan University, Judith Butler was somebody who profoundly shaped my thinking around gender. And while it doesn't seem so mind-blowing to my students anymore, it certainly was a kind of critical intervention in my own way of thinking about um, the production of subjectivities that... Mm -hmm forever changed how I understood myself, my own identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, people like Annie DeFranco, um, who I think paved the way for so many grassroots feminist artists
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, to build indie careers. And I certainly shaped a lot of my touring life around what she and others like her were doing in the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and there's like a litany of, of feminist thinkers I could point to, like Audre Lorde and Adrienne Rich and Bell Hooks. And then there are people that just like were at my core, like the Indigo Girls, you know? <laughs> I yes. think people who just like spoke to my soul on some profound level.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think everybody uh, hopefully has, but definitely needs those uh, sorts of people inside them. Yeah. Well, is there. Anything else that we didn't talk about in terms of your work or feminism in in the Atlanta area that you wanted to kind of discuss?
2: Just that there are, um, I've got a number of really incredible activists to campus um, who I didn't know about before I moved to the South. I mean, moving to the South, I moved here last July, so I've had just about over a year to, to sort of figure out what, what's happening here at some level, um, and um, <laughs> Southerners Organizing on New Ground is a really incredible um, racial economic justice project um, led by feminists of color mm-hmm. um, here in Atlanta, and they're just doing incredible work. Um, the acronym is SONG. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also an organization called Black Mamas Matter that's doing really incredible work um, um, in terms of uh, here in Atlanta. Um, I'm writing an article right now on Black Lives Matter um, organizations um, or chapters in the South mm-hmm. and the ways that those look different from other chapters. Um, and and so I think about just just sort of the the attention that I've been able to bring um, for myself in terms of what. These national, you know, they kind of everything gets lumped together, right? It's like Black Lives Matter is doing this, and we can read their their national platform or agenda. Um, but to actually examine what's happening on the ground um, where you live, I think is 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 really critical um, and something that, as someone who was touring around, I I was never in one place long enough to actually get involved locally in what was happening. So I always felt like I had this broad overview of what was going on, but never. Um, able to drill in really deeply. And so um, as, a, as a feminist um, thinker and as an academic, I feel like part of my work is using the resources that I now have to, to draw attention to what's happening locally in the place where I'm working. Um, and So that's part of what I'm doing is bringing those folks to the campus so that students can then organize with them, connect with them outside once they graduate to give them sort of activist opportunities that they might not have
1: otherwise. Yeah. Both those organizations sound amazing and I will link to them. Wonderful. I think that's, those are all the questions I had for us to talk through. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Thanks so much to Alex for taking time to speak with me and to you for tuning in. I have linked in the show notes, the organizations that Alex mentioned there at the end, as well as some recordings of her poetry, the trailer to the documentary that she was in, and a link to the anthology that she edited. So lots of good stuff in the show notes. You can find those at 50feministstates.com slash podcast, or in most podcast listening apps as well. Next week is the final week of season three, which honestly is hard to believe. Next week, we will also visit our 25th state, which means that we are halfway done with 50 feminist states, which... I can barely believe it's been such a whirlwind and such a joyous journey. And I am so happy and honored to have featured so many voices and shared so many stories. So I'll save more of my sappy reflections for our actual 25th episode, but be sure you stay tuned as we wrap up season three with episode 25 next week in Kentucky. Until then, I'll see you on the road. 50 estados i this episode of 50 Feminist Dates. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 states. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.